Um, today, uh, I want to look at social sciences. Uh, I want to look at religion through a social science lens. Uh, being a cultural anthropologist, uh, I think that social sciences, especially anthropology, is uh, especially well suited to look at religion with its holistic and its cross cultural approach. And it's um, well situated to look at religion's origins, uses, and uh, discover why people seem so attached to religion, despite us having science, which, uh, especially in these humanist circles, is generally agreed upon to be a uh, much more satisfying way of looking at the world around us. Uh, let me start by giving as brief an overview as I can of the study of religion in anthropology and social sciences. I'll try to be as brief as I can. Um, and I'll touch on some of the major theories and players. Um, but I'll be leaving a, a ton of stuff out. I just want to kind of give a brief outline of it because I'm sure nobody wants to sit here and listen to a theoretical history lesson all day, uh, unless you do, which I'll be more than happy to do that too. But I'm kind of just assuming that you don't want to do that. A uh, formal study of religion started out around the same time as and was very heavily influenced by uh, the theory of evolution. Uh, these early studies were actually done in a way that today would not be considered very scientific, very social. Um, the social sciences just don't do studies like this anymore. What would happen would be that the... Um, Anthropologists would send out a questionnaire to a um, missionary or a colonial official or read a report of a missionary or a colonial official. And it, it didn't really entail any sort of participant observation by the anthropologists themselves. Uh, these early studies of religion tended to look at um, religion through an evolutionary framework, proposing that religion moved through stages, which started out with animism, which is just simply the belief that all things, even inanimate objects and natural phenomena, such as weather, have some sort of spiritual essence, and then progressed through stages of polytheism, where people worshiped many gods, and then eventually reached the what they considered to be the highest form of religious belief at the time, uh, which was monotheism, and finally reaching a stage where scientific thinking came into being supplanting uh, religious thinking. The most influential of these works was Sir James Frazier's The Golden Bough in uh, 1890. Uh, Frazier really didn't have a lot of information on many of the world's belief systems, and he had a very Eurocentric and ethnocentric outlook and pretty much dismissed religious beliefs, uh, writing that, quote, I look upon them not merely as false, but as preposterous and absurd. So, I mean, there really was no objectivity to this study. I mean, he was just very flat out Eurocentric and ethnocentric and just looked at religious as being some sort of primitive way of thinking. Uh, his contemporary, Sir E.B. Tyler, had a similar restricted view of religion. In uh, 1871, he narrowly defined religion as simply the belief in supernatural beings, 
which leaves out a lot of what religion is about. Uh, today, religion isn't looked at with an evolutionary framework in the social sciences. Uh, modern anthropology recognizes that just like the dichotomy between primitive and civilized was way too simplistic, ethnocentric, and biased to be a useful way to look at human society, that religion also can't be pinned down to simplistic categories of just more advanced or more simplistic forms. Uh, modern approaches tend to look at the functionalist and symbolic uses of anthropology. In 1912, the sociologist Emile Durkheim used a functionalist approach to look at anthropology, to look at religion, defining it as a unified system of beliefs and practices relative to sacred things, that is to say, things set aside and forbidden, beliefs and practices which unite into one single moral community called a church, all those who adhere to them. So this approach stress the role of religion in structuring community life, providing rules or guidelines for behavior, and bonding members of a community to one another. Uh, Durkheim identified the creation of what he termed collective effervescence as the main contribution of religion to society. Uh, in other words, he saw religion as uniting people by giving them similar thoughts and emotions, uh, gained through ritual activity uh, that acted as a social glue. So in this view, religion played an important role in building connections between people by creating shared definitions of the sacred and the profane. Uh, Bronislaw Malinowski in the 1920s and 1930s similarly looked at religion's functional value to society seeing it as a way for people to give themselves certainty in an in uncertain world. His most well-known work was a study of the Trobriand Island trade network known as the Coolering, which included uh, a specific trade uh, between specific partners uh, for very specific items, namely necklaces and armbands. Uh, he noticed that the Trobrian Islanders, right before they would go on these long coolering trading expeditions, would do these very elaborate ceremonies that they would not do uh, when they went on ordinary fishing trips. You know, when they went on an ordinary fishing trip, they just leave. There is no ceremony or anything attached to it. But this coolering had very specific ceremonialism attached to it. Um, he surmised that the reason that they attached ceremonialism to the coolering expeditions and not to regular fishing trips were that the fishing trips weren't really considered all that dangerous, while the coolering expeditions required much more dangerous and risky trips that had far less certainty of success. So therefore, the, the Trobrian Islanders would give themselves uh, an edge by appealing to supernatural forces to help them have successful trading expeditions. And uh, anthropologists were not the only ones to notice these functional uses of religion. Uh, as early as 1844, Karl Marx famously referred to religion as uh, the opium of the people. 
Uh, he believed that religion was a way to legitimate social inequalities by orienting the lower classes towards the afterlife instead of this life. So basically, the elite were using religion against the non-elite in this view, saying that no matter how bad their life was now, that just wait, after you die, you'll be rewarded in the afterlife. Of course, you know, making sure that they lived a virtuous life, which not coincidentally included adhering to the laws and standards that the elite themselves set up. So basically, you know, be happy being poor because you'll be rewarded for it after you die, even though we have no real way to prove this, but just trust us. The psychologist Sigmund Freud also uh, believed that religion had a functional use. Uh, namely to suppress the what he saw as the innate desires in people, such as the famous Oedipal and the lecture complexes, you know, keeping us from having unrestricted sexes, uh, sex with our parents. Because, you know, obviously when we're all born, we're just lusting after our parents. The sons and daughters are lusting after the mothers and fathers and need something to prevent them from uh, just going at it. And religion, he's uh, in... Freud's view was a good candidate for some social uh, institution that prevented us from acting on these innate impulses. Uh, the school thought that my professors thought, uh, taught, and had, that has been ubiquitous since at least the mid-century in anthropology is the symbolic school of thought. Uh, this approach is heavily influenced by ritual and performance studies. And it looked at religious beliefs as a kind of text or a kind of performance that can be interpreted by outsiders. The most influential figure in this school is Clifford Geertz. Uh, Geertz suggested that religious practices were a way to enact or make visible important cultural ideas. The symbols used in any religion, such as a cross in Christian religion or a cow um, and Hindu religion can be interpreted or read by anthropologists to discern cultural values. At the same time, religious symbols reinforce values or aspirations in members of the religious community. For example, the Christian cross, which is associated with both death and resurrection, demonstrates ideas about sacrifice and putting the needs of community first. Uh, the cross also symbolizes deeper ideas about the nature of life itself, such as that suffering can have positive outcomes and that there is something beyond this current reality. Uh, the symbols are what they call polysemous, encoding uh, many different levels of meaning within them. So the cross is actually not just a symbol of the crucifixion, but is also a symbol of Christianity itself and all the ideals that Christianity also espouses. And beyond these uh, theoretical approach, there are some also more modern approaches that have uh, popped up in the uh, intervening years uh, since mid-century, 20th century, such as post-colonial approaches, which look at religion as an element of subjugation and revitalization. Uh, there are feminist approaches, which look at the role of women in religious system and uh, how religion affects women's place in society. 
and also culturalist approaches, which try to look at religion from a more enic view, a more insider view, and try to avoid the ethnocentric biases of some of these past studies of religion. Um, but these uh, evolutionary functionalist symbolic, these are pretty much the main way that social sciences approaches the uh, study of religion. So how is religion defined in social sciences? Uh, even though religious expressions vary across time and space, uh, anthropologists have identified some common characteristic that all religions share in common. Um, and I'll just briefly run through these. All religions have a religious cosmology attached to them. Uh, these cosmologies are ways of explaining the origins of the universe and the principles of order that govern reality. Uh, these cosmologies can take anything from the form of an origin story or an explanation for the history, present state, and possible futures of the world or the origins of the people, spirits, divinities, and forces that populate the world. These cosmologies also raise the question of how they should be interpreted. Should they be regarded as the literal truth? Or should they be regarded as more metaphorical or symbolic? Uh, even within specific cultural beliefs, uh, individuals disagree about the nature of their own religious traditions. You know, for instance, some Christians believe the Bible is the literal word of God. That, you know, God himself or herself or itself actually dictated this word to people. And literally what it says in the Bible is how we should be living our lives. And some Christians believe that the Bible is more allegorical and not really meant to be taken literally. Uh, anthropology has one of its main tenets as cultural relativism. So cultural relativism requires that anthrop anthropologists avoid making any sort of judgments about whether any cultural idea, including religious beliefs, is correct or true. Instead, for us, a more useful approach is to try to understand the multiple ways that people interpret or make sense of their religious beliefs. In addition, it is also important to consider the function a religious cosmology has to the wider society itself. As uh, Bronislaw Malinowski observed, a myth or origin story is not an idle tale, but a hard-worked active force. All religions also include a belief in These can take the form of a supreme divine power. They can also take the form of a belief in forces not governed by natural laws. Some of these supernatural forces may be anthropomorphic, combining non-human and human characteristics. They may be zoomorphic, taking the characteristics of certain animals. And other of these supernatural forces can be more generalized such as a phenomenon like the wind or the rain. Uh, the amount of involvement that supernatural forces or entities have in the lives of humans also vary cross-culturally.
All religions also give prescriptions for rules governing behavior. These religious beliefs are an important element of social control because these beliefs help to define acceptable behaviors as well as punishments, including supernatural consequences for misbehavior. Rituals are also important in all religion. These rituals can be categorized into different types based on their goals. We have uh, rites of passage, which are designed to mark transitions between different important life stages. Uh, we have rites of intensification, which are designed to bring communities together after a crisis, such as a drought, or maybe they'll have a rain dance afterwards to bring back the rains. And then there are also revitalization rituals, which are meant to help societies resolve problems such as war, famine, or poverty through spiritual or supernatural interventions. Um, the ghost dance is a example of one of these revitalization rituals where in the 1890s, Native Americans were seeing their culture being um, supplanted by European culture and wanted to bring back more traditional ways. So a um, Wavoka, a Paiute medicine man, um, had a vision where he saw this ceremony where if they did this specific ceremony, including this specific dance, that it would bring back the old ways of life and drive the Europeans from the continent. Um, unfortunately, this also resulted in um, the massacre at Wounded Knee, which ended up costing the lives of these ghost dance participants who believed that by donning the ghost dance shirts, they would make themselves impervious to uh, things like bullets, which unfortunately, in reality, didn't work and uh, ended up uh, in disaster for them. And we see this going on in our own society today. You know, a lot of what we see with these movements um, like QAnon and so forth are these uh, revitalization movements. And fundamentalist Christianity is basically a revitalization movement. They want to bring back society to the quote-unquote pure state of how Christianity means it to be. Uh, all religions also include religious practitioners. These can take the form of full-time practitioners, uh, which we call priests, part-time practitioners, which are what we mean when we talk about uh, shamans, or uh, even people who claim to have some sort of uh, direct connection to supernatural powers or supernatural knowledge. Uh, such as prophets. Uh, if there's any questions, uh, let me know because I can't actually see if anybody has their hand raised or anything. So feel free to let me know if anybody has any questions or anything while I'm going on. I'm watching the list to make sure we don't have anybody raising their hand. Okay, great. Okay, so that um, all of that is how so social sciences look at religion and how they define religion. But none of that explains actually where religion comes from. Uh, where did this concept that around 6 billion people in the world today profess some sort of belief in come from? 
uh, discover the origins of religion, uh, we must look at when humans first started thinking like basically like humans. Uh, as um, my professors like to, to um, put it, when did uh, people first start having something to talk about? Obviously, religion is a way of looking at the world that requires something more than just thinking about basic survival and basic needs. It requires things such as abstract thinking, planning, and even imagination. Uh, requires us to think about things that are not physically right in front of us, or even things that we may not be able to physically sense at all. It requires us to have a plan, a sense of the past, a sense of the future, a sense that we have some sort of purpose in this life. Uh, how do anthropologists get at this? You know, what kind of uh, remains do people leave of this? You know, these the earliest religions, the earliest religious beliefs came about at a time way before people were writing anything down, way before there were any writing systems. So we basically have to look at clues in the archaeological record. So we look at things like burials, uh, people purposely being buried, especially if they're being buried with grave goods. Uh, we look at depictions of things such as impossible entities that could not exist in the real world. Um, we know that people weren't actually observing these entities, um, that these were more things that they were, I hate to say imagining, but were in the imagination. And we look at uh, when magical or spiritual themes first appeared in art. Uh, we also look at things that required planning and foresight, such as toolmaking. Uh, so yes, other animals do use tools and even other primates use tools, but none of them use tools in the same way that humans use tools. For instance, they don't pre-plan how they make their tools. Uh, they don't reuse their tools and we don't see any sort of innovation or refining of their tools over time. You know, for instance, a chimpanzee will take a stick, take the leaves off of it, use it to fish out some termites, get the termites out, and then once it's done, it basically just takes that stick and tosses it aside. Uh, there's no reusing it. There's no sort of plan as to how can I make this better? How can I improve on this? It's just very situational. Um, and we don't see it, this improving. Uh, who were the first human toolmakers? A good candidate for this is uh, Homo habilis, about two and a half million years ago. Uh, this is also when we see the cognitive leap to uh, more sophisticated ways of making and using tools. And this is actually a big cognitive leap. Uh, when you're making a stone tool, you have to have things like a cognitive template in your head about what you want this tool to look like. You have to know which materials to use. You have to design the tool for its intended purpose. 
You have to plan what to do with this tool after it wears out. And we see that these early toolmakers were doing all of these things. They were using very specific materials for their tools. So they had some sort of ideas that, you know, this stone is better than that stone for this purpose. They made their tools obviously using some sort of mental template as for what they wanted these tools to look like. They did things like repairing their broken tools. So, you know, unlike the primates, they were reusing these tools, sharpening and resharpening the tools. They would even carry around stone blanks with them in case they happened to need a tool and they could fashion a tool with them using their um, preferred material, which they would carry around with them. And we also see that their tools were refined and innovated over time. Their tools became more sophisticated as time went on. They were definitely thinking about what they were doing with these tools at more than just the basic level of, you know, I need a quick way to do a general task. They were thinking more along the level of, I need a standardized way to do a very specific task. So we have this ability to uh, plan, refine, and envision outcomes which is the basic template for having things like language, art, and uh, eventually religion. Uh, this early time, two and a half million years, someone like Homo habilis probably had language. You know, they were doing things that uh, would have been pretty difficult to do without having some way to convey abstract thoughts to each other. But this doesn't necessarily mean that they had things like art and religion. Uh, we don't see any evidence in this earliest period of any real creative endeavors like this, like art or religion in this early period. Anatomically, modern humans first appeared around 200,000 years ago. And it doesn't look like much really happened on the artistic and philosophical side of things with uh, humans for about 80 to 100,000 years. Then at around 100,000 to 120,000 years ago, we see the first intentional human burial. Uh, we see the first known burial that we know of comes from a place in Israel called Kafsa. Uh, this dates back to about 100 to 120,000 years ago. Uh, this grave also had grave goods associated with it in the form of red ochre. So they weren't just burying the dead, but they were burying the dead with some uh, goods. And there seemed to be some sort of ceremonialism surrounding the burial of the dead. So this was suggesting that some sort of ritual took place, which suggests that they had some sort of thought that there was uh, something that happened at death. You know, maybe a transition to a different state of being or a different realm. At around this time, we also start seeing uh, some interesting things um, such as decorated marine shell beads, which were perforated and decorated. And these beads obviously had nothing to do with utilitarian purposes. They didn't have anything to do with procuring food or procuring shelter. So basically what we're seeing here is the first evidence of non-utilitarian behavior or, you know, artistic behavior, if you will. 
around 40 to 50,000 years ago, we start seeing evidence of the first truly modern human behavior and the first uh, sort of what we would recognize as really artistic expressions. At this time, we have what we call the creative explosion. You know, like in the Cambrian, we had the biological explosion where, you know, life proliferated in all these different forms. 40 to 50,000 years ago, we had the creative explosion among humankind where all of a sudden we start seeing all these different artistic expressions coming into being and all these different art forms all of a sudden appearing in the archaeological record. Um, some researchers think that this may have been helped by a genetic mutation in the brain that also helped humans survive and adapt to the new environments that they found as they left Africa. This was also about the time that humans left Africa and started uh, peopling different parts of the old world. And interestingly enough, um, this adaptation in the brain also seems to have some sort of genetic link to schizophrenia in modern humans, and we're still not exactly sure why it has that link or what the significance of that link is. Around 30 to 40, uh, 30 to 34,000 years ago, we see the first burial associated with elaborate brave, grave, bleh, grave goods. And we find this at a place near Moscow called Sungir, Russia. This consists of three burials. Uh, one of which you can see there on the right. The three burials consisted of an adult male covered in beads and ochre and his red pigment. It also included a juvenile and an adolescent, a boy and a girl who were approximately 10 and 12 years old. Uh, the boy and the girl were buried head to toe. The male was covered, uh, if you could see these... Uh, beads that are covering the body here. He was covered in 3,500 mammoth ivory beads. And he wasn't the only one that had grave goods. The little boy was covered in 4,500 of these beads. And the little girl had over 5,000 of these beads buried with her. Um, archaeologists used experimental archaeology and sort of figured out how long it would take for one of these beads to be made. You know, they would they uh, messed around with making these beads till they got themselves at a point where they became pretty proficient with making these beads. And what they found out was that even with proficiency, each one of these beads took over an hour to make. So, you know, if you could, you know, do the math of that, you have thousands of beads, uh, 13,000 or so beads being included with these burials, which includes about 13,000 man hours of time and effort to spend making these beads to basically adorn them on these dead bodies and be buried, never to be seen again. So, you know, obviously something was going on. They were including these grave goods with these bodies for a reason. Uh, 32,000 years ago, we see representations like the one you see there at the bottom, which was found in a German cave and seems to represent a figure that is part lion and part man. So an anthropomorphic figure. And interestingly enough, um, 
this is also analogous to a Hindu deity, uh, which may suggest that the oldest organized religion in the world, which is Hinduism, may have antecedents that go all the way back to this period. Uh, we see the first temple complex appear around 12,000 years ago at a site in Turkey called uh, Gobekli Tepe. This site consists of a few concentric rings or circles, uh, five rings of standing stones or pillars, each ring having a, a roughly similar layout. In the center of these rings are two large stone T-shaped pillars encircled by smaller stones which all face inward. Uh, the tallest of these pillars is over 16 feet high and weighs between uh, 7 and 10 tons. And um, these would require considerable effort to move considering that uh, we also don't have any evidence that they had draft animals even. And in fact, at this time, they didn't even have agriculture and this was even before they had pottery. This was even before pottery existed. They were building this temple uh, complex in Turkey. Uh, some of these pillars are blank, while some of them are carved with elaborate depictions of things such as foxes, lions, scorpions, or vultures. I uh, see some of these depictions on the right. Uh, these depictions are very active, uh, crawling on the pillar's sides. You know, in the middle there, you see a depiction of... Uh, maybe some sort of deity uh, encircling the pillar. Um, and again, you know, like I said, this was a site but made by people who didn't have any agriculture, no draft animals, and no pottery. And lastly, we see the uh, evidence of organized religion. Uh, the first and oldest religion that we know of is actually Hinduism which we know is at least 4,000 years old. We have um, writing that refers to Hinduism from at least 4,000 years ago, and there's uh, other evidence that suggests that Hinduism may be as old as actually 8,000 years old. So this far predates uh, Christianity by at least a few thousand years. Uh, some of the most striking physical proof we have of the existence of these developing supernatural beliefs were found in the cave art of the Upper Paleolithic. Uh, we know that this art must have had some very special significance of the people who made it because they didn't just go into the entrances of the caves and make the art at the entrances. These guys were going very deep into the caves and making this art in the deep, really hard to access areas of the cave. Uh, there's also evidence that ceremonialism went on around these depictions. Besides the cave art itself, we find footprints on the floor that show that people were doing things, you know, like digging their heels or their toes into the ground as they made this. Um, you know, the way that the footprints are suggests that there is some sort of uh, rhythmic movement, maybe dancing going on uh, as they were making or viewing these uh, cave art symbols. 
uh, these symbols have actually been linked to sensory deprivation and also hallucinogenic drugs since people who experience altered states of conscience report seeing these same sorts of images that are depicted on the cave art. Uh, the cave art has about 32 different uh, geometric images that is included in it. And people, when they have visions, and um, will report seeing things like these cross-hatched uh, visions or dots or asterisks. And what they report when they look at the cave art is very similar to the two. Um, these uh, images make up about two-thirds of all cave art that we know of. The other third is made up of images of game animals, people, and um, anthropomorphic beings. Uh, the game animals seem to have been part of some sort of hunting magic ritual. As uh, this art, we often find having indentations in the art itself as if uh, while they were making it, they were also spearing these depictions of the animals. So again, this... Sorry, yeah. uh, we have a question. Sure. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but... Sure. Go ahead. Well, it's not so much a question as an observation. The um, An item on the top line there suggests they might have had an early version of Twitter. Um. Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, in the Van Donneken, Graham Hancock view of things, maybe, but uh, scientifically, uh, we do see some, you know, this art, though, is a very sort of dynamic art. So um, like Twitter and like movies, you know, as I'll, I'll show in a way, you can think of this art as sort of humankind's first attempts at uh, moving pictures. I'll show why in a few uh, few minutes. Uh, I was being uh, facetious somewhat because, uh, as I said, looking at the crosshatch mm -hmm. on the top line uh, reminds me of uh, the sure. commonly used Twitter uh, handle. But it's just so. Please go on. This is fascinating. Well, I mean, maybe this shows that there's uh, not much originality in the way that we think symbolically uh, these past uh, 100,000 years. Um, again, you know, all this shows the uh, human propensity for abstract thinking. The earliest art that we find in caves dates back to 100,000 years ago. Um, this was found in the Blambos cave in South Africa. And here researchers found pieces of ochre, some engraved with abstract design like you see there on the right. Um, we don't have any idea of what exactly this means. Um, this doesn't seem to be analogous to any sort of writing system. Uh, you know, even though we see these symbols and, you know, those 32 symbols, we see them again and again, and we see these over a wide area of Europe. And uh, even going back to South Africa, we see these symbols, but there doesn't seem to be enough of them that would have uh, made up any sort of writing system. 
So, I mean, it's you can't think of these really as analogous to a writing system or as just to a some sort of symbolic system. Uh, beads, stone tools, and engraved bones were also found in this uh, Blambos cave in South Africa 100,000 years ago. Uh, the earliest, if you want to think of it as stencil art, dates to about 40,800 years ago. So basically people would take pigments and use some sort of hollowed out reed and blow that pigment, uh, mixing it with, you know, water or some sort of uh, grease or something and making some sort of uh, stencil marks on the walls. The earliest of this we find 40,800 years ago in the cave of El Castillo in Spain. Uh, it consists of the series of red dots. Uh, new research actually shows that these red dots may have been made not by ancient Homo sapiens, but may actually have been made by Neanderthals, which means that it may not have even have been Homo sapiens that were the earliest pictographic artists in the world, but actually may have been Neanderthals who were the earliest pictographic artists in the world. Um, Neanderthals actually have gotten a bad name in popular culture, but the more we find out about them archaeologically, the more we find out that they were actually extremely sophisticated and had, you know, extremely sophisticated tools just like humans had. And they even buried their dead just like humans did. And they had artistic expressions just like humans had and also had intentional burials just like humans did. So, I mean, far from these sort of stooped over um, stupid apes, in fact, uh, when Neanderthals were first found, the first scientific designation that was proposed for them was Homo stupidus. In other words, the stupid human, because they figured that uh, these were not very intelligent. Uh, the earliest Neanderthal finds that uh, skeletal finds that were made were actually of a old man that had very bad arthritis. So when you see these depictions of Neanderthals stooped over, not even able to stand upright, that's basically because just by um, twist of fate, the earliest Neanderthal skeleton found was of this severely disabled individual and didn't really uh, skeletally represent what the typical Neanderthal was like. Um, the earliest animal depictions we find date to about 35,400 years ago. And these weren't found in Europe, but were actually found in Indonesia. This art in the cave depicts hand stencils. So again, taking your hand, pressing it against the cave wall, using a, a pigments that you blow through a tube to make this impression of your hand on the wall. Um, maybe this was a way of marking territory. Maybe this was a way of uh, showing that uh, you belong to this certain place. Um, the, we also find depictions of animals, such as uh, the warty pig that were endemic to this area. Uh, the most ancient of all depictions in this cave were these hand stencils that you see at the bottom here. These have a minimum age of at least 39,900 years ago, 
which makes them just about 900 years shy of the world's oldest known cave painting of any kind, which were those red discs found at uh, El Castillo, those uh, red dots found. Uh, the youngest stencil was dated to no more than 27,200 years ago in this cave, showing that this particular artistic tradition lasted unchanged at Sulawesi for at least 13 millennia. Uh, the Chavette Cave in France is arguably the most significant of these prehistoric art sites, uh, mostly due to the fact that it's one of the best preserved of uh, cave paintings found anywhere on Earth. It was uh, first explored by three speleologists or cave researchers, uh, one of them being Jean-Marie Chauvet, who the cave was named after. The age of the paintings in the cave has been disputed over the years uh, since its first discovery in 1994. Uh, about a 2016 study suggests that there were two periods of creation that existed in the Chauvet cave one occurring from 37,000 to 35,000 years ago, and the other from 31,000 to 28,000 years ago. And uh, these dates were discovered using uh, radiocarbon dating. Within this cave, we find hundreds of depictions of animals. At least 13 different species are depicted, uh, not just predators, but also herbivores. And that are many of these aren't found in any other of the cave art of that time. Um, other paintings found in this cave, or other uh, pictographs found in this cave, include things like these red ochre hand stencils, again, very ubiquitous. We find abstract lines and dots. We find a what they term a Venus figure with a very pronounced vulva and legs and two unidentified figures um, that were believed to have some sort of ritual or magical aspects. And we also have a depiction of what appears to be a volcano erupting lava, which is probably the earliest known depiction of a uh, natural event, a volcano erupting. Apart from cave paintings, um, we also, we also find within these caves remains of uh, humans and animals, sometimes uh, commingled with each other's markings, fossils of different kinds of animals, uh, some of these animals extinct today. And we also find human footprints, which are sometimes found along animal prints. Uh, you know, like I said, don't think of this art as necessarily being static either. This art was made using the natural contours of the cave. So if you ever go into these caves, you see that, you know, these art just wasn't made like a modern painter would make a, a painting on a flat canvas. Uh, the people that made these depictions of these animals and these beings were using the natural contours of the cave to suggest the contours of the animals that they were depicting and also depicting movement. There's actually a interesting video, short clip of a video I want to show that shows a, a filmmaker actually who depicts how this might have been experienced by the people of this time.
Exhibition Works. And when I first saw the ancient art in caves, Yep. Uh, of course, you, Yahoo asked in their uh, YouTube, I guess it's ads in first. I'm not seeing the picture, but I'm hearing the sound. Yeah, okay. Okay, can you see it now? Yes. Okay. And here's my mock-up of how it might have worked. The animated effect might have been produced by doing drawings in sequence and then revealing one after another under candlelight. And there's evidence that this theory is true. Just look at the multiple legs drawn on this painting. effect of evoking life by moving a light over a three-dimensional object. And there's another thing. Today we see cave art with electric lights, but the ancients saw it under flickering candlelight. And I think under the light of a flickering flame, it augments the animation effect. And there's one more thing. As a storyteller, and that's linear narrative or storytelling. The caves are covered in overlapping art. Imagine revealing this, 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 and this in a narrative sequence. That's exactly what filmmaking is. Scene after scene, shot after shot, building up a story. No, that actually is not Cro-Magnon Man, by the way. It's... Okay, let me see if I can get my presentation back up now. We'll send out the link to that video when we um, put it up on our YouTube channel, too. Oh, okay, good. Okay, hopefully I'm back in business here. Yes, you are.
course, the big question of all this is why? You know, why do we, why did people go through all this effort and trouble to make up a belief system that uses all these fanciful creatures and supernatural forces to explain the world? Um, this has to do, um, I probably mentioned this a few times in other meetings. Uh, it's actually kind of one of my pet theories in anthropology myself and one that I'm very invested in is that humans don't navigate the world via, via our observations of the world, but we navigate via our interpretations of the world. Humans are actually extremely horrible at making direct observations of the world. Uh, you know, we could see this just looking at simple um, optical illusions, uh, such as the ones seen that below. You know, if I were to ask you to look at these two tabletops, and ask you which one of these two tabletops is the longer of the two. Um, I think probably most people would think was the left. And it does appear to the our eyes that the left is considerably longer than the right one. But I mean, if you were to take these two, say cut them out, superimpose them on each other, you would actually find out that both of these tables are the exact same length. There's actually no difference between the two lengths of these tables. And, you know, we see optical illusions like this. I'm sure you could think of plenty of these. Uh, and it's not hard to see why we are so bad at observation. Uh, human beings weren't really equipped with a lot of very good biological equipment. We have, you know, in comparison to other animals, we have extremely horrible vision. Our hearing is extremely bad. Our senses are, you know, like the optical illusions show, they're very easily fooled. Uh, we're extremely bad at judging things like distance and speed. Uh, we can only see a short distance in front of us with any accuracy. And uh, we can only hear a very narrow range of sounds. So in the big scheme of things, in the natural world, humans are pretty much a disaster. I mean, by all accounts, we're among the slowest, weakest, and most vulnerable of the animals out there. Uh, I mean, when you think of it, there are spiders out there that can kill us. Um, insects can kill us. Uh, in all fairness, Humans should have been driven to extinction a long time ago by the other animals. So why weren't we? Uh, why we weren't has to do with our intelligence. You know, obviously, we couldn't outcompete these other animals physically, so we had to do what any good nerd would do. We beat them up with our intelligence. Uh, we're sort of the um, biological example of the revenge of the nerds. As a byproduct of this, people started relying less on instinct and started relying more on intelligence and interpretation. So religion is basically just an early attempt by man to explain the world around them. It explains the world to beings with abstract intelligence in a way that makes um, a lot of sense to them. And in a way, science is just a continuation of this process that was begun by religion. Uh, both science and religion have the same underlying purpose and the same underlying problem. 
How do you explain things whose causes are not readily apparent and things whose uh, may not even be directly observable? For example, the creation of the universe or the creation of life. Uh, we see this religious thought foundation in early science itself. You know, for instance, the first colleges were basically offshoots of religious institutions. Many early, of the early scientists professed a belief in some sort of religion. Uh, many sciences came out of supernatural studies. You know, for instance, chemistry had its roots in the study of alchemy. And uh, even religion itself recognizes that science is a fellow way of explaining the world. Uh, despite the very contentious relation that science has to uh, religion in America, we actually find that a lot of religions embrace science, often with the, of course, often with the caveat that uh, they have a spot reserved for the, you know, the prime mover the thing that kicks off it all being some sort of religious deity or religious power. As long as we use that caveat, a lot of religions don't really have a problem accepting beliefs such as evolution or the Big Bang Theory. More Science is more third-person and impersonal. For instance, you know, imagine that someone contracts AIDS. You know, if you look at that scientifically, science would say that that person contracted AIDS because they contracted a virus through some sort of close contact that involved the exchange of bodily fluids with an infected person. Uh, this explanation for the contraction of this virus would not include any judgments about the person's morality or about their position in society or about their devoutness to any sort of belief system. On the other hand, someone contracts AIDS and you want to go for a more religious explanation. The religious explanation might be something more along the lines that that person contracted this disease because they were acting in some sort of immoral way that displays displeased some sort of deity. So therefore that person had to be taught a lesson and punished and made an example out of so that other people don't also perform this bad behavior. And you know, we also see this sort of uh, depiction being played out even in popular culture. You know, we always see Science, you know, the scientists are always these absent-minded people that have trouble relating to people. They're very introspective, uh, not very personable. Um, there's a very good documentary that was made, I think about 20 years ago at this point, called A Flock of Dodos, which looks at the um, evolution uh, and uh, creationism debate that goes on in American society. And uh, one of the points that they make in that is that um, one of the reasons why so many people are so open to the creationist view is because creationists themselves are seen as very personable and open and warm and welcoming, 
while scientists are often seen as these sort of cold, stuffy people. And uh, the theory of evolution requires some sort of scientific knowledge where the um, idea of creationism really doesn't require any sort of specialized knowledge. It's a lot more approachable to people um, at a more sort of gut level. You know, again, playing on our um, abstract thinking abilities, it's a lot easier to believe that, you know, magic people made the world or a magic person made the world than it is to understand that there are these natural processes that go on that eventually resulted in things like uh, human beings that came about through the natural process of evolution. And of course, the biggest sticking point between the religious and the non-religious seems to be in the realm of morality. Uh, religious people claim that human morality ultimately has its origin in religious belief. Uh, while the non-religious claim the morality and belief are two separate things and not mutually inclusive. Uh, the scientific weight currently is with the non-religious at the moment. Uh, we can see that the basis of morality is not religious, even by looking at the animal kingdom. Uh, we see animals doing a lot of moral behaviors, including altruism, including um, uh, a Brazilian dog named Lilica that uh, was recently a sort of YouTube phenomenon. Uh, this dog travels four miles each night in the dark to a junkyard that it was rescued from. And what it, they found out that this dog was doing was that it was taking food to other stray animals in the junkyard that uh, it was also cohabiting with when it lived in the junkyard. And this, you know, when I say this family, I don't mean it's genetic family. Um, the animals that it's bringing it to uh, includes another dog, not a genetically related dog, but it also includes a cat a chicken and a mule. So we have this dog that is going and bringing animals, non-canine animals, food. Not for any purpose that uh, genetically um, has any benefit to itself. So why is it doing this? Um, the other animals she's feeding are not her offspring, but she helps out these others in need regardless. So I mean, we have a non-human example of altruism, of morality. You know, is this dog a good Christian or good religion uh, adherent? Probably not. Or you could take the case of a blind elephant that was brought to an animal sanctuary in Thailand after being rescued from abuse. Uh, it was um, originally used as a um, sort of a pack animal. It was used for tourists to ride upon its back and uh, was pretty much abused by its owners and this animal sanctuary in thailand somehow got a hold of this elephant and rescued it and again even though this elephant had no genetic relatives in this sanctuary and these other elephants had no genetic benefit to helping out this blind elephant uh, very quickly, we found that the elephants in this sanctuary started helping out this elephant. 
including uh, one female elephant that uh, took it upon herself to guide around this elephant. Even though, you know, guiding around this elephant, again, has no genetic, no sort of benefit to this elephant. So again, you know, is this elephant just being a good Hindu or good Christian? Probably not. Uh, the more we discover about animals, the more we discover that altruism is actually not that rare, even in non-humans. So this old idea that animals just help out those that can benefit them genetically is increasingly being uh, subverted. We see this very strongly in the studies of our closest kin, uh, the other great apes, and especially the chimpanzees, who exhibit uh, many characteristics that were once thought to be the exclusive realm of only humans. So we see them doing things such as warfare, carrying out organized warfare. Uh, we saw one chimpanzee troop actually carrying out an organized attack against a neighboring troop. And we also see selfless altruism also being exhibited by them. So it seems that there's something encoded deep in our primate species that um, kind of influence us to help each other out, even if it doesn't have any sort of benefit to ourselves. Uh, for example, um, there's this famous study that was done in the 1930s. Hopefully I can get it up here. Which shows two chimpanzees um, cooperating with each other. If you ask anyone what is morality based on, uh, these are the two factors that always come out. One is reciprocity and associated with it is a sense Can of you turn your sound up a little bit? And the other one is empathy and compassion. And human morality is more sure. than this. But if you would remove these two pillars, Oops. not much remaining, which are the absolute I think that might be as loud as that goes. I, I think if before you share your screen at the bottom, you'll see two buttons that say enhance sound or allow sound or something. So before share you share. Down. Oh, share sound. Okay, I yeah. see it. Yeah. Okay. So supposedly you should be hearing this in stereo high fidelity. So this is already about 100 years ago I don't know if that, that we were doing experiments. Yeah on cooperation. And what you have here is two young chimpanzees who have a box, and the box is too heavy for one chimp to pull in. And of course, there's food on the box, otherwise they wouldn't be pulling so hard. And so they're bringing in the box. And you can see that they're synchronized. You can see that they work together. They pull at the same moment. It's already a big advance over, over many other animals who wouldn't be able to do that. And now you're going to get a more interesting picture, because now one of the two chimps has been fed. So one of the two is not really interested in the task anymore.
Now look at what happens at the very end of this. He takes basically everything. <laughs> so, so there are two interesting parts about this. One is that the chimp on the right has a full understanding he needs to partner. So full understanding of the need for cooperation. The second one is that the partner is willing to work even though he's not interested in the food. Why would that be? Well, that probably has to do with reciprocity. There's actually a lot of evidence in, in primates and other animals that they return favors. And so he, he will get a return favor at some point in the future. And so that's how this all operates. We do the same time. Of course, in that case, the one chimpanzee was a little bit selfish with it. But we do see a, a lot of evidence of altruism among um, primates, especially chimpanzees, where we find them uh, engaging in behaviors, uh, for instance, caring for orphaned uh, chimpanzees that don't have any genetic relatives among the troops. Uh, someone, one of the other um, chimpanzees will adopt it and take care of it. Uh, we see evidence when there are some chimpanzees that are disabled. Uh, other chimpanzees will help them uh, get food or um, even get around. So, you know, altruism is not really the sole domain of just humans. So, you know, morality is not just something that only humans do. So if religion were the source of morality, then, you know, how do you explain all these examples of morality, altruism, and cooperation among non-humans? Uh, there's also the idea of whether having a society based on uh, either religion or secular leaders is um, the best type of society. Uh, we see around uh, the world these debates over whether government should be more theocratic or whether they should be more democratic uh, for theocracy. Um, the advantages of that are basically that there's very few people who make the laws, very few people who make the rules. So the process of the system tends to be faster. And also, not since not so many people are involved in the jurisdiction, this tends to reduce uh, the corruption rate in the government system. However, theocracy has a lot of disadvantages too, such as the authority being held in the hands of the religious groups themselves, the, which are just made up of a few people, and laws being based on religious beliefs, which may or may not be correct in all cases. And also because there are such a small number of people in power, that tends to make these uh, very top-heavy societies and the individual vote doesn't really carry much weight. So there isn't really much political freedom in these theocracies. On the other hand, you have democracies, which have the advantage of majority rule, which helps to avoid power monopolies. Also, the power ultimately lies in the hands of the people themselves which means that people have the freedom and the power of voting and choosing what they want. 
and also means that a disliked leader can be removed more easily uh, as people have the freedom to do so. Uh, the disadvantages of democracy are that it also tends to favor the elite. Um, and, you know, democracy also has dangers involved with, you know, immoral practices going on during elections or the misuse of public funds or the legal system taking a, a long time to sort of plot its way through its decisions. However, overall, democracies have been shown to be more stable, both politically and economically throughout time. Uh, democracies have also been shown to be less violent and less oppressive statistically, and especially in uh, populations that tend to have a lot of heterogeneity, such as um, Western Europe, United States. Democracies also allow more freedom and equality. Uh, in the modern world, we're seeing uh, religion lose ground as science takes over. And even though humanist thinking is more prevalent now than ever before, this is not to say that humanism itself is anything new or even something that just arose during the Enlightenment. Uh, perhaps the earliest person that we might be able to call a humanist in any sense would be Protagoras was a Greek philosopher and teacher who lived around the 5th century BCE. Protagoras exhibited, exhibited two important features which remain central to humanism even today. First, he appears to have made humanity the starting point for values and consideration when he created the now famous statement that, quote, man is the measure of all things. In other words, it is not to the gods that we should look when establishing standards, but instead to humanity itself. Secondly, Protagoras was skeptical with regards to traditional religious beliefs and traditional gods. Um, so much so that he eventually ended up being accused of impiety and exiled from Athens. Um, he was known to exclaim, uh, as two gods, I have no means of knowing either that they exist or do not exist, for many are the obstacles that impede knowledge, both the obscurity of the question and the shortness of human life, which was pretty radical sentiment 2,500 years ago, and which actually is a pretty uh, radical statement even today. Humanism really found its foothold during the Enlightenment, though, as the scientific method gave people uh, finally a different way of thinking besides religious thinking. And this way of thinking could also be checked for bias and proven through objective means. Uh, obviously, this didn't just simply destroy religion, and religion is still with us, still remains a very potent force in society as sort of a counter move to science and the threat that uh, religion represent, uh, science represents to religious power, uh, fundamentalist movements have arisen in many Western nations, including the United States. Uh, but fundamentalism, you know, I would say, you know, I would stress, don't think as fundamentalism arising from ignorance, however, it more arises from a different worldview that is counter to science and is rooted more in this uh, religious thinking. 
the key question of the modern world has become, why do we see such divisiveness between religion and science? And can these two worldviews be reconciled or should they even be reconciled? Um, you know, I have my own opinions on that matter, as I'm sure you all do too. Um, so the answer lies pretty much in the way that humans ultimately decide to handle this question. So by way of uh, conclusion, you know, when the social sciences look at religion, we're not looking at religion as in any way backwards or primitive or as being a backwards or a primitive way of thinking. You know, on the contrary, we recognize religion as being very integral to the human experience. It's actually a very highly intelligent strategy for explaining and navigating what's a very complicated world. Uh, this is especially important in a very mentally dependent animal such as the humans. Uh, even though humans now have science as an explanatory tool to look over the world in a more objective way than um, Actually, I should say religion can. It's typo. Our religion still persists, for better or for worse, as a way that humans have to interpret and engage with the world around them. So even though we now have science, uh, we still haven't completely overcome this religious thinking or this other worldview of looking at the world around us. And that's sort of my thumbnail version of how the social sciences look at uh, religious, religion and religious belief. So anybody have questions or comments they wanna make? I was thinking about the um, the thing about the other primates or other, uh, well, this case was a mammal, this dog that recently found and rescued a cat who had been put in a plastic bag. Um, I, I thought that was just a great um, display of, of humanitarianism, so to speak, or empathy and uh, concern. Uh, Jim Young? I just want to say that was a uh excellent presentation i really enjoyed that oh, thank you. very educational and uh, i wish we had more people i know that there are people that had their engagements today but uh this was an excellent presentation and uh i think you I may did. have just become my most favorite person in this uh, group <laughs> well uh <laughs> <laughs> i uh I've always appreciated your input in this group as well, Michael. Yes. Oh, thanks. Thank you, Jim. Um, Ellen? Yes, I, I put the uh, link in the chat box, but there's also been studies that show that parrots actually practice hmm. altruism. There was an experiment where they had two African greys and they were taught that they had to give these chips in or these tokens in to get food. And they gave all the tokens to one African gray and the other African gray wasn't related. They weren't related. They were just two African grays. And when the African gray who had the tokens noticed that, hey, the guy next to me doesn't have any tokens, he can't get any food, he would pass his tokens 
to that other bird. And he didn't get any kind of extra treats or anything. You just saw he didn't have the tokens. He needs the tokens to get food. I have all these tokens. Let me pass. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, um, there's I many examples of, you know, this altruistic behavior all throughout the animal kingdom. And, you know, I often ask religious people, how do you explain those altruistic behaviors? And I'm still waiting to get a satisfactory answer <laughs> from them. Um, yeah. Thank you, um, Ellen, uh, Linda. My um, neighbor had a African gray. We went over to visit. The dog was jumping on me and I said, we were in the other room. The bird was in the next room over, could hear us, but couldn't see us. And I said to the dog, get down, no. And all of a sudden the bird was, here Rover, come over here, come on. <laughs> and like, this has gotta be the most amazing thing that the bird realized the dog was upsetting me, called the dog over. It just was beyond belief for me. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, one of the things that something came up, I didn't make a note, I apologize. Um, um, when you were talking, showing the art in the cave, um, Ellen pointed out that some of these images were very similar to what she had uh, when she has migraines. And it occurred yeah. to me that I had, I used to get auras with my migraines and I would see some of those, especially the, the spots and things. And I just wonder, has anybody ever looked at whether that could have influenced some of the cave art? Um, yeah, I mean, they've done studies using uh, people putting them in um, sensory deprivation chambers. Which, I mean, when you think about it, that's what these caves pretty much were. They were sensory deprivation chambers. You know, if you ever go through these caves, there's always that part where they turn off all the lights and show you how it's just pitch black in the cave. You can't see your hand in front of your face. So, I mean, you know, like I said, they're going deep in these caves. They're not sitting there at the mouth of the cave. They're going, you know, half a mile, quarter of a mile, you know, sometimes a, a mile deep into these caves in these very hard to access places right. and sometimes they even have to like crawl on their bellies to get to these places and once you're in there i mean there's no natural light there's no natural sound there's you know all your senses are pretty much shut down and just like when people are put in these sensory deprivation chambers and when they left people in these sensory deprivation chambers for a while they would often report seeing images um, just like those migraine images you were referring to and those images we're very similar, if not exact, to many of those uh, 32 symbols that I showed you before that were shown on the cave walls. Yeah. So yeah, there, there seems to be some sort of link there. Interesting. Uh, Jim Peterson has another question or comment. <laughs> yes, something ridiculous, no doubt. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, I was uh, very pleased because you managed to validate all my biases, <laughs> or at least most of them anyway. Um, I did want to say that I was especially pleased to see uh, you're including uh, the temple at Gobekli Tepe, mm -hmm. which I've seen a number of uh, documentaries and so forth. And it's very impressive. 12,000 years ago, yeah. and they're doing these extraordinary works of, of, of architecture and sculpture uh, and, and in, a, in a, almost a modern way. It's uh, the, uh, the structure of the columns, the L shape curve to match the whatever roof was on it. I imagine a thatched roof of some sort, but 
you know, it's uh, we're, we we think of ourselves as so modern and so developed, but uh, we've been doing this for quite a while. But at the same time, 12,000 years ago is like just a moment in time as far as evolution sure. is concerned. You know, <laughs> we don't have a good concept of time uh, too, too often to appreciate just how recent we are on the scene. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're basically, you know, just appeared, you know, that famous uh, comparison. If you compress history down to an hour, I mean, we basically just appeared milliseconds ago. <laughs> right. That's right. I mean, we just got here. Anyway, uh, well, thank you, thank you so much for for doing this for us. Mm -hmm. uh, one 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 thing, though, I, I think it's important to give a prominent place to the role of emotional uh, support that religion supplies. Sure. Uh, we originally have suffered greatly from the fear that we that was pervasive that had to be as we confronted animals and so forth that were out um, to eat us. And uh, uh, there was vast ignorance, there was disease, there was threats on every side. And uh, so our ancestors needed whatever they could get hold of to kind of bring them together to make us the social animals that we became. And that was our, our, our true defense, our ability to associate with each other for, for common purposes. Uh, and I thought you brought that out rather nicely, too. Thank you. And it's like these early hominin fossils we find. I mean, where we find them is basically in, like, saber-toothed tiger, you know, where they obviously ate the uh, hominin. You know, we find puncture marks in their skull where the saber-toothed tiger basically was having them for dinner and then just tossed them aside. And that's how we find these early uh, hominins. We weren't the hunter. We were the prey for most of our history. It wasn't until very recently that we became the dominant species. And if it wasn't for this intelligence, uh, I mean, I would argue that we would have been extinct a long time ago. I guess our primary defense was not uh, arrows and spears. It was hide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I also see that uh, you put in the chat that... Uh, with that chimpanzee film that that was uh, from Franz de Waal, which actually it was Franz de Waal who was in that uh, clip. And he recently came out with a book in 2016 called The Atheist and the Bonobo, mm -hmm. where he looks at um, altruistic behavior among the bonobos, which are probably most famous for being the sexualized ape. Yeah. Um, they tend to uh, solve their social problems by basically having sex with each other. <laughs> uh, Sharon, I see you've unmuted. Did you have a question? Um, yes, I did. Well, it wasn't really a question. It was kind of a, a thank you uh, statement that you made, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it. Um, really hit home with me. The religion and science both try to explain their world and their surroundings. Mm -hmm. Never really gave that a thought, but they use different methods. That religion uses the personal and science uses the non-personal. I've never given that a thought, but it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think in the United States, especially we're so sort of primed to seeing religion and science as just being so antagonistic to each other that we fail to see that there are certain points where they aren't so antagonistic with each other. 
Um, I mean, to be perfectly transparent, I mean, whenever I teach my class, I let them know I privilege the science view and I'm going to privilege scientific explanations. But you know, at the same time, I recognize the importance that religion has in um, these explanatory worldviews and that this you know, religion shouldn't just be dismissed. You know, the actual conflict between evolution and creationism, say, in our society, isn't that science is trying to disprove uh, uh, creationism. It's basically just saying that creationism is not scientific and cannot be proven through scientific means. So basically, we're just saying stop trying to use science to prove religion, yes. just like you can't really use religion to prove science. Mm -hmm. okay. I, 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 I'm sorry, Sharon, were you through? I was just saying thank you. Um, I had a question for you about the, the use of um, uh, satellite images for di discovering new archaeological sites. Have, sure. have you, um, is that really opening up many new places for us? Is that how yeah. uh, new things, I know it's how new things are being found, but how important are the new things that are being found? I mean, yeah, we're we're finding you know a lot of stuff that we would otherwise not have found. Um, I don't remember exactly which uh, you know the shuttle it was, but what they found out was that when it was scanning the Earth, that it actually not only scanned the Earth but also scanned like a few feet underneath the Earth. Mm -hmm. So it was not just scanning the surface, but it was also scanning underneath the Earth, and there was a lot of new archaeological finds found in that way and and yeah we found a lot of new sites especially in places like uh you know the jungles of south america where it's very hard to find sites because you got the tree cover and everything's so overgrown but yeah when you get up high it becomes a lot easier to see these things so yeah i mean that's definitely a new tool i mean I, i'm not an archaeologist myself so i, mean, I can't go into too much depth with that but yeah that's definitely um resulted in a, a lot of new discoveries. And it's interesting to me too, how we see the um, development of art across the world, that it, it mm. showed up in Indonesia and in Europe and in um, just kind of a parallel evolution, so to speak. Yeah, and then, you know, we see over this wide area and we see very common themes and, you know, with those images, those uh, pictographic images, we see that over a wide area of Europe. And, you know, again, possibly that's to do with uh, humans having similar wiring and going in these hallucinogenic states and trance states and so forth. Oh, no, no, no. It's aliens. It's alien. Oh, oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the history <that>. Channel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, okay. And that's done. Yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. <laughs> Um, any other questions or comments anyone wants to make? No? Well, thank you so much, Michael. It's been a real, thank you. Thank you. real interesting and, and provocative and thought-provoking um, presentation.